I think I, I didn't have any other options at the time, okay. but once I got into it and my frustration was at its highest, I didn't know what to do. And I was crying many times about how to make payroll. My grandfather pulled me aside and goes, you don't know what it's like to run a small business until on Thursday night you're crying because you don't know how you make payroll the next day. And I experienced that quite a few times. Choose not to live in a world of filters. Realize your mistakes. Set the foundation for your success. Get some wins. Knucklehead Podcast. Hi, welcome to another edition of Knucklehead Podcast. Got yeah, with you today, the Knucklehead Steven. I'm excited to have, um, I would say, a family friend uh, and then sure. a personal friend. Yeah. And then a business associate, kind of all in one person type of thing. Uh, so, Billy Self. Uh, local here to the Rockwall area. If you're if you're actually in the Rockwall uh, area, you probably know Billy. Um, I introduced. I, excuse me. I started this off by saying that uh, Billy was a friend of the family. So my wife and them, they they go back for Jesus, we back to whenever they were kids. So apparently, your parents and her parents had known each other for a period of time. They were sailing buddies um, at Channel's Landing. Is yeah, that right? Yeah, I mean they were hanging around the yacht club, and yeah, so it's kind of swimming pool, yacht club. Sure. Okay. Yeah, your wife since we were little, little. Yeah, she's so she's she's talked about um, Billy in that context for for as long as I've known Billy, and then I've come to know Billy through things at church and you know just interactions that we've had over at uh, uh, over at his business, and I'll let him get into the backstory of, of what we're house program and stuff like that comes from. But uh, the reason why I want to back develop some context in terms of the personal connection is because we're going to jump into some things. We're going to jump into some. I would say some experiences that whenever you're talking about business, uh, they can be a little bit uncomfortable. So sometimes those those personal uh, connections, at least from a perception standpoint, people like to try to control the perceptions in certain relationships. And it doesn't allow for people to, to really get into the details of what was going through somebody's mind. And just before we started recording, uh, I was sharing with Billy, you know, a mistake that I that I made. Um, he didn't know me really well. I think at this time, I think he maybe knew that we were married and knew that I was in the Marine Corps. Mm -hmm. Um, but didn't know that I almost, I mean, we had no money. Like I screwed up my entire income stream for my family for a few months Mm -hmm. because I, I let my ego get involved in, you know, a business decision and, uh, and I didn't even own the business. So I had this emotional tie to the performance of the organization and, from the outside looking in, you probably had no clue what was going on in my life because I wanted to control the perception of things. And, uh, and that self, I don't know, that control really just, I mean, it's, it sent me on this spiral of like, can I actually produce or am I going to screw this up too? You know, and so there was a lot of self doubt there. So mm-hmm. I wanted to put that, that uh, personal connection in terms of how Billy and I knew each other, or at least came to know each other because, um, if you're listening to this podcast, you may be going through something similar or know somebody who's been through something similar. Right. And uh, Billy can get into his backstory a little bit more than I can here. But we had, we were talking a couple weeks ago, and uh, there was one story in particular. We don't have to jump right into this one, but you had talked about a period of time in your life because you're an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have six kids. How many? Seventeen. Six, four. Four, okay. four daughters. Right? Four daughters. Okay. Yeah. Married. Um, mm-hmm. Wife's kind of type A, going all the time, also. Yeah. yeah. Is that safe to say? Uh, she's a type B, competitive type B okay. personality. What is that? What is that? Competitive. Uh, she's highly, highly competitive, but okay. she's uh, different competitive than I am. But put us on an um, air hockey table and it'll be fiercely competitive. But um, just different kinds of competitiveness. But uh, she's, uh, you know, I would con- consider myself type A. She's more type B, and but still very, very competitive. Opportunities to butt, butt heads? Uh, yeah, she's a strong woman, which I love her for. That's why I married her. But yeah, she's a strong woman, yeah. and she's very smart. And she, she is part of the business decisions nightly. You know, I keep her up to date on what happened and why. Uh, because if something happens to me, she's going to step in. Well, I appreciate that. And I appreciate the, the backstory. There was, there was one instance and we were talking a couple weeks ago at the anniversary or the, uh, the reunion for your, mm-hmm. for your high school. And you had talked about like the income that you were making in the business and, and how that transition took place. 
Mm-hmm. In the context of this conversation, it was business transition. So a lot of times family businesses can get super messy because somebody overextended themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, can, I mean, there's a lot of emotional food distribution is this way. Uh, there's a lot of regional competency in terms of how that business has grown that is embedded in like trade secrets in that family. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes just things don't work out very well. And then mm-hmm. like the next generation comes along and it has to clean up a lot of mess. And so there was some things that we were touching on there. You, you I'd, I'd like to much. pull back and give you some trauma from my dad. Oh, in the business. Let's do that. Then. Which will lead into the trauma that I experienced. All right, let's do that. So the family business that um, we have is it started as a soap company. And it started in 1976. And uh, he created a C corporation and raised this money through shareholders and was going to go take over the world with soap. Um, it was gangbusters in the beginning. It was in Dallas. And uh, he was living in Dallas at the time. And it, shortly after, he moved to Rockwall. So like 76, 77, we moved to Rockwall. But the soap company was in Dallas. And it we had this, uh, he had this business partner uh, that was uh, part of the business and that relationship went south very quickly in the late seventies, early eighties. And um, I was born in 81 and that relationship went south so quickly that uh, the company went bankrupt when I was a year old. And so 1981, my parents were lived in Rockwall. They were living in the condo at Chandler's and the, uh, they filed for chapter 11. So they got to reorganize. And, um, about that time, you know, he was wondering, like, I can't pay rent in Dallas and I got to figure out what to do. And so he happened to be here in Chan- uh, here in Rockwall talking to someone who said, Hey, there's an empty building, an empty warehouse on industrial Boulevard. And this guy named Uncle Al, who everyone knows, um, he still owns, uh, he passed away, but his family still owns most of Industrial Boulevard, said, uh, hey, Scott, I've got an empty building that hasn't rented out. Why don't you move your business in there? And I'll, uh, uh, and, and, and my dad goes, well, I can't pay rent. I have no money. He goes, well, move in. It's empty. And when you can pay rent, you know, pay me. Well, it was six months before he was able to pay rent. And, uh, but that moment is, is what saved the family. Like we had this family business and we were going to lose everything. And I was a year old. I'm the oldest, I'm a younger sister, but, um, uh, and, and so he went through this bankruptcy and still wanted to make this soap. And so he's making it set up shop here in Rockwall. So now we, he lives in Rockwall, works in Rockwall, um, but he uh, couldn't pay for himself and uh, his employees. So he had to go get another job. And that other job was at the Chandler's Landing Marina as the marina manager. And so he worked during the day at the marina and had his employees work during the day at the soap factory. And he would go work at night. So did they do that from the time that? He moved into Industrial Boulevard? Or yes. That? Okay, so that was something that he burned the candle at both ends for months before he was able to do. For years. Years. Got yeah, it. so it. he kept the job at the marina for years uh, trying to pay back his debt from bankruptcy court. And so uh, there was a lot in there and what that happened in the early 80s, but there was a lot of uncertainty about what was going to happen with the Self family. My mom, when I have a one, you know, I'm, I'm one years old and, uh, you know, how are we going to make it? Well, what's interesting about my dad's dad is he was a business professor at TCU, taught the MBA program, taught in the business school at TCU. He was actually a professor there for 27 years in the business school. And when my dad was going through bankruptcy, my grandfather said, listen, Scott, I can't really be associated too closely with you right now. Because for my son to be going through bankruptcy while I'm teaching an MBA program, that doesn't look great. So they had this disconnect of father-son that was traumatizing. I can't imagine. And then my dad was trying to pull out of that. But um, there was a lot of 
uncertainty in the, in the mid 80s, but he actually, uh, by 1986, was able to pay all of his bankruptcy debt back. Wow. So he pulled out of that bankruptcy. And so that C Corporation is still intact to this day. So you know, we organized and we paid our bankruptcy debt, but that company is still the same entity. So my dad, you know, recovered, excuse me, and the company, you know, kind of modestly took long, but that trauma for my dad was still there. The emotional calories, the, the effort. Uh, and so by the time I'm in high school now, and I'm like, you know, I'm 97 through 2000 is when I was in high school. Right. My dad was starting to get tired of just the business. Sure. So he kind of recovered from the trauma, but he was tired from it. So that's where he got involved in politics. And he's like, well, I'm going to, I'll go do something else. So he ran for, he'd already been county treasurer. So he ran for county, uh, city council. Then he wanted to be mayor. So he was in being mayor, which we make fun of him, made fun of him for being the most famous one term mayor ever. Is that right? So from 99 to 2001, he was mayor ballpark. And so the business, at that point, and this is the critical part, and when I came into play later, uh, shortly after, was when he got really involved in politics is when the company started losing money. Mm. And so the late 90s, early 2000s, the revenue went flat and the profit went into the red, dangerously so, each year. Mm. Goodness. So I left, I go for college. I'm go to Aiden Galveston, and I, at the time, you're that's kind of your, during your developmental years. I mean, you're you're starting to develop a relationship with money and responsibility yourself. You're seeing, yes. you know, entrepreneur uh, as a dad, you know, business professor as a granddaddy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. How was, did y'all ever have a relationship with your grandfather? I, I loved my grandfather. Yeah, we had a because he was the one that got us into sailing. Okay. So. Um, Alan, I, it's funny. He, I didn't call him grandpa or anything. He's, he wanted me to call him Alan. So it was Alan. My dad would call him dad. I would call him Alan. But, um, the three of us did just a ton of sailing together, you know, and, and all over. He was in Fort Worth, uh, cause he taught at TCU. So it was at Eagle Mountain Lake. But, um, yeah, I, I consider it was very close to my grandfather and it was, for me, it was kind of like an internship. I grew up in the soap factory. I got to work in the factory. And then in high school, I got to work in the you know, marketing, putting samples together. Sure. In college, I got to start doing accounting. And uh, and, and so that was you know, going through. Did you have any, so you said accounting. Did you have any idea what was going on in the business at the time? Or did yes, you, you did. You knew? Well, I started to put things together. And my dad was pretty open about it. He goes, okay. well, you know, there's some credit card, zero balance transfers. Uh, we owe Grandpa Allen blank for this inventory, or that forklift, or uh, the bank. We owe this to the bank. Um, there was lots of different loans everywhere. It was messy. I didn't really understand balance sheets. I had no clue. I'm going to school, you know, business school, but I don't know if I just didn't get it in business school or I didn't listen at the right times. But going through it than just learning it for sure. It is so much different yeah. when you actually need to make payroll. And you need to check, is there money in the checking account to pay rent? And there is um, things that I just didn't understand in business and how it applied to whatever I was learning in college. Sure. It just didn't equal. Yeah. But um, I didn't know I was going to come back to the family business. I studied shipping in the maritime industry. I thought I was going to go work for a port operations company in Port Houston, Port Galveston, or be shipped off to another country which made my mother-in-law, future mother-in-law, very nervous that I was going to take her daughter somewhere. You're going to be where? Yeah, exactly. All over the world. So there was my senior year spring break. I did not know what I was going to go do. I didn't have another job lined up. And my dad in spring break goes, "Listen, listen, son, I'm going to either close the doors to the soap company or you can give it a shot. But either way, I'm done. His emotional calories had run 100% to zero. I mean, so all the way to zero percent. And I said, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, he owned the building because uh, he moved from Industrial Boulevard to Interstate 30. He was actually able to uh, borrow money to buy the, 
uh, building on Interstate 30. And he goes, well, you know, when I close the doors, we'll just stop making soap because we're losing money at it anyway. And uh, we're at the building now, and I'll go do something else. And you can go work for a shipping company. Well, I didn't have another job, so I said, well, I'll give it a shot. And he said, well, great. And if it doesn't work out, then we'll try and figure out a way for you to go to master's, get your master's somewhere. So, okay, it's worth a shot. Now, Katie had another year of college for her to finish her degree at a College Station, and because uh, I was at Galveston. And I said, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll give it a shot. But I came in, and everything was, as you would expect, uh, lack of care or attention. And I, not only did I have to learn real-world business, of, but I had to like figure my own path and I had to fix it. So fortunately I had an accountant who I still have today. Her name's Kay, Kay Yates. Okay. So she was hired by my dad spring break of my senior year. Okay. And says, will you uh, help my son kind of learn everything and see if he can help him fix it. Um, It took me a lot of uh, blood Sweat and tears because oh the other thing I, I lived at the warehouse for a year. So, so Katie, uh, for context, Katie is now your your wife, mother of four children. Yeah, you referenced your mother-in-law a little bit earlier. Yeah, uh, y'all have been dating through, throughout this entire time. Right. Yes. And it's, so Katie was Katie was very excited about Billy, but did she understand like you were living in the warehouse and all of those things at that point in time? We I were mean, engaged, okay. and I was waiting for her to graduate, okay. and I had no money. And the company had no money. And my dad said, uh, you are not moving back into the house, which made my mom very mad. Uh, but so I lived in an office at the soap factory for a year waiting for Katie to graduate. And um, and so I basically worked uh, every minute of the day because I lived at work. Um, so I woke up at 6, 7 a.m., started working. And... Uh, I'd go to Wendy's after work to eat dinner, and I'd come back to the warehouse. I'd work some more. This whole time you're doing triathlons too, right? Is that oh, right? that was later. Oh, gosh. <laughs> that was All later right. a little bit. Goodness. All right. But um, it took me basically from 2004, yeah. I graduated college, it took me to 2007 before I broke even. Okay. So let's, let's uh, I pre- appreciate the context of uh, how so the experience, first of all, working and understanding a little bit about the business, coming back to Rockwall and understanding the operations maybe behind soap manufacturing. Is that what you learned in conjunction with the accounting? Yeah. And the marketing side? Okay. Yeah. All right. So there's that. There's those things. But that experience was also developed a lot by maybe systems and processes that your dad had in place or maybe a lack thereof. Like nobody else was doing it. So then you had to learn it. And so you... Right. You did some of that too? Yeah. We had, you know, five to eight employees, you know, three of them were doing uh, production and then say five of them were doing sales. It was all telemarketing, which was dying, by the way. Telemarketing was dying in the 2004 to 2008 range. So not only was I trying to... selling industrial soap then, right? Right. To other businesses. Okay. Yeah. And so, you know, trying to figure out how to do business and how to reinvent the sales process for us. Yeah. I could, like, what was it about, was it just the fact that it could be something that you could do? Like, what was it about, you graduated from college, Texas A&M, very credible university, lots of opportunity to do a lot of different things. What was it about that, knowing all of what you do, what was it about that that made you go, you know what? Yes, I want that challenge. Well, have you thought about, like, why that was? Well, I'm curious why, I think I I didn't have any other options at the time, but once I got into it, and my frustration was at its highest yeah. and I didn't know what to do. And uh, I, I was crying many times about how to make payroll. My grandfather pulled me aside and goes, you don't know what it's like to run a small business until on Thursday night you're crying because you don't know how to make payroll the next day. And I experienced that quite a few times. But my grandfather also said, why don't you write up a list of all of your problems in detail and what you're paying yourself, what you're not paying yourself and post a news article uh, advertisement of listing all the things and then say, uh, 
you know, for hire a general manager to come turn around a company as an opportunity. And he said, you'll have a line out the door down the road of people that want that opportunity to turn something around where the, the outcome is in doubt. And so that was kind of a mantra of the cell family was going after things where the outcome was in doubt. Whether it was my dad going for politics or, you know, just adventures that we did in sailing or uh, in this business. So that single comment is what motivated me to say, let's see if we can turn it around. Yeah. Now I had a lot of support because the loans and the debt was bad. So this is one of the funny things. What once, you know, three years into it, when I knew enough about P&L and balance sheet to go, oh, this is really bad. I would, again, my grandfather was an MBA professor and I put this presentation together of like, here's the balance sheet, here's the uh, P&L statement, here's what I think I can do. And I laid it out in front of him and said, what do you think, Grandpa Allen? What do you think? He goes, well, your balance sheet's crap. And I said, well, okay, thanks. And that's all he said. And he goes, and uh, your profit and loss statement. I said, yeah, what do I do? Like, wh what should I do to make this better? He goes, well, looks like you need to make more money than you spend. And that's it. He didn't tell me any other advice. I went, well, okay, back to it. And, um, but there was this moment in 2006, um, and, and I don't mind, I was telling I don't mind sharing that at the time I was paying myself about 30,000 a year. And uh, that so was 2006, two, hour, two years after you graduated from college. Right. And so most of your friends, did you have friends at the time that were obviously doing a little bit better than, than that? Or Absolutely. Or, okay, cool. So, yeah. So I'm still have that pressure. You still have that pressure that weighing on you a little bit too. Yeah. So, so uh, that wasn't uh, enough for us to pay for the, our first house, you know, like just the monthly mortgage. And my wife uh, not only had her job as a spine uh, salesman, and, but so she got a second job at Culpepper's working not, uh, Friday and Saturday nights. And so I was basically working every minute of the day. And then she was working two jobs. We were trying to all piece it, piece it together. But that um, there was this moment where Katie in the most loving way comes up to me in, in a kitchen, I'll never forget it, neither will she. She said, Billy, if you're happy doing this, meaning soap, then I will stick by you and, and we will make this work. But I just wanna understand if this is where it's gonna stay. Are, are we, this is kind of the level of what soap will do for us. She knew all the pressure of the loans and gosh, even just making week to week. And, yeah. you know, is there enough money in the company? Is there enough money for us to pay the light bill? And it was a, it was a big moment of support, but also a flash of, oh my goodness, I need to get my in gear. Yeah. And uh, so that was a big moment. And, you know, part of one of the things that I really push for is mentorship mm. and, you know, Alan, my grandfather was a mentor. My dad was a mentor. Uh, but, you know, about that time, my dad was starting to build Seawolf. And so he, uh, so he's busy. He's not available to help me with the business. First of all, he didn't care anymore. Yeah. He, you know, he, he just spent the last 15, 20 years literally fighting, creating two careers, one on the docks, mm -hmm. learning and uh, probably enjoying himself a little bit too. Also, I mean, mm -hmm. sailing is, that's a, so there's a lot of people, a lot of fun on that. That's a great pastime, uh, right? To be able to have, but he did both of the, both of, both of those things. Mm -hmm. Probably been dreaming about building this boat for for God knows how long. Well, right, and so he part of the the multi generational thing is when the next generation comes in, the 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 mom or the dad who had it needs to let go 100. percent hmm. So we didn't have that problem because he <laughs> didn't care. Yeah, <laughs> so he was uh, like, "I'm out. I don't want to do this anymore." Sure. But it was, uh, like I said, it was three years in that we, until we stopped the bleeding. So that means that first three years of me working, I was still increasing the debt. So 2006 is when Katie came to you in the, in the kitchen and said that. Mm -hmm. Fast forward a year later, you had essentially eliminated a lot of the pressure. Do you think a lot of that has to go back to Katie confronting you in the, 
in the living room. I'm just talking to you. Yeah, because yeah, because it was really transparent. And Katie went to business school. She yeah. went to May's basis business school at A and M, and so yeah. you know, from day one, she was educated enough to go, and she was in sales herself, so she understood enough to go. All right, this is needs needs to be more, and um, so. It, what the nice part about breaking even is that we weren't losing any more money, but we weren't making any money. And you, what I learned is you have to make money to be able to even pay off the debt. Okay, for so sure. I did, you know, even as simple as go, oh, well, the profit and loss statement, yeah, that net income is great, but it has to be enough net income to pay, pay, down. pay down the balance sheet. all the nonsense. Yes. Yeah. But, um, but that's when I started to try new things. 2008, I tried to... Um, start selling Dyson Airblade hand dryers. Okay. And so that was a moment of trying something that was different. And the idea was that we wash hands, why don't we dry hands? So I called uh, Dyson in Chicago, which is in the North American headquarters. So they're, you know, British. And said, hey, can I sell your hand dryers? And they said, why? I said, well, I make hand cleaner. I want to, you know, wash hands. I want to dry hands. And they thought I was silly. And I actually had to convince them to let me buy some and uh, basically bought them at retail to try and resell them to prove to him that I could sell. It. And that's when I realized I was more of a salesman than a operator. And that, that we can go into that. And another thing was like the learning about who I am and I'm not an operator. Yeah. But um, that sale, selling the Dyson Airblades saved the business because it ended up doubling the revenue of the company, actually by more so, more than that. Um, so soap remained flat. I was never able to grow soap. So I tried three times going to retail, failed miserably, hmm. even borrowed money. Do you remember trying to go retail with what, soap? What was the total number of, of uh, hand dryers? I, that's, it's fascinating to me to hear about that. But like, what was it about that? Um, do you remember the number of, of uh, hair excuse me, hand dryers that you initially went after? Yeah, so my first year of selling hand dryers, I sold 40. Your first year? First year. Okay. I sold 40 units, and they you know, they retail for $1,200 sure. each. And so there was an expensive hand dryer, but I sold 40. And then the next year I sold, um, I think it was like 500 the next year. And then it started clicking up to where uh, the following years, uh, I basically sold about 100 a month. And so now that's, as far as cash flow, is the, the bigger thing than soap. Soap was, yeah, great, but hand dryers ended up being Same. the thing yeah. that I was better at. Uh, and that is what saved the company. Uh, In 2009. So 2008, you did that for the first time. 2009 is when things really started to click. You went to college 2004. Right. So in five years, you had gone from soap business to losing money, soap business, mm -hmm. break it even, soap business, making money, and then soap business, making money, now a hand, hand dry, with washing hands and, wa and dry hands. That's right. Okay. That's incredible. Okay. So then we, we kind of carry on with that, and cash flow was stressful, but at least we're making money. Then in 2011, I got a call from somebody who wanted help with warehousing. It was a, a mentor of mine that I'd met in 2010. His name's Matt. And Matt said, hey, I've got this company here up in Kansas City that needs warehousing. I know you got some extra space in, in your building on I-30. Uh, you think you could try it? I went, yeah, sure, I'll try it. And that was our uh, entrance in 2011 into being a warehouse for other people. So now I have soap. I'm selling hand dryers. And now I'm doing shipping as a third party for other people. So I got three things all under the same company. So we've got the C corporation going still, which makes no sense, by the way. We can do that later. Yeah. And soap is the smallest thing. So that warehousing customer ends up being higher revenue than soap. And then Dyson Airblade, just because the thing is expensive, that's a higher revenue than soap. And we kind of carry those three things all demanding my attention, but things are going okay. Like we're finally paying off our debt. I think it was 2012 or 13 when I paid off all of the bad debt. 
That's incredible, man. So it took me about nine years, and I'm talking like the the debt to even my grandfather and the bank debt. It wasn't great to make the balance sheet look a little bit better, and you know, getting a line of credit from the bank. That's a better debt. So the bank would actually approve that. Yeah. Um, and my grandfather had stepdaughters that were like wanting claim to, you know, it's just weird. Yeah. All of it was just weird. I understand. But um, yeah, it took a long time to get rid of the old bad debt. Finally got that wiped away. Because before I, like, I want to dive into this just real quick. I don't get messy real quick. Oh, that's it? Okay. <laughs> no, I mean, it, it, in, in a great way, I'm happy to say all of it, but it's, yeah, there's lots of spider webs out. Well, I mean, okay, so just... The, the thought of, you know, when some people pay off their house, like they, they, like there is a relief associated with that last payment. And then they realize that, you know, the, the month is after that is still going to come, right? They still owe property taxes or the month after that's still going to come and they, they still have bills. So all this extra money that they had had is, it, it's never really the debt. It's, that's the weight, mm-hmm. um, you know, except for in the business, because then your P&L starts to free up. You have uh, more flexibility, more liquidity. Uh, more options to do certain things to a certain extent what was unattainable from a you know from a lifestyle standpoint becomes a little bit more attainable so to speak mm-hmm. uh, but what was it about paying off that that what that do what did that do for you because i mean honestly for the for your from your from your story from the time that you were one up until now it, it's always been there it's always been kind of a part of something you've had to deal with so that's a great that's a great way to say it Stephen, because the the trauma of bankruptcy for my dad in the early '80s always excuse me always stuck with him and the conversations about what he would tell me about how to handle the situation. So he would never tell me what to do. He would just go, "Well, son, my experience is, you know, this debt is scary," um, and he also told me never ever go to court. Uh, you know, as far as like keep yourself out of court. In bankruptcy court for him sure um or and and just keep yourself out of debt or the dangerous debt so we still have tons of debt in 2013 but it's all transferred to safer debt sure you know it was like okay line of credit you know all right that's safe debt you know actually we got an sba loan somewhere in 2013 you know so there was, that's safe debt um but um all these different pieces of the pie but you know dad was very um very traumatized by debt because of the early eighties. And so that really stuck with him even until when he passed away, it was a big part of how he viewed business. So he was very afraid of taking risks from that standpoint. And my mentor, Matt was not afraid of debt, you know, going to borrow money to go take a risk, um, like trying to go retail with soap. He lost a lot of money trying to go retail with soap just trying to put our claws into the dirt, trying to make that work. And it never, never did. I will say we still make soap. It's just not a big piece of our business. Understood. Um, So in 2016 is when my biggest competitor in the nation selling Dyson Airblades, you know, we always butted up against each other on airports and train stations and football stadiums. Uh, He calls me and says, I hate competing against you. Can can I buy you out? I said, well, I don't even know what that means. What, what do you mean buy me out? He goes, well, I want to buy your customer list. I want you out. I want to buy you so that you can't do this anymore. I went, well, I kind of liked doing what I was doing. I didn't even think about that. But ultimately, I, uh, we came to an agreement to where I, I said, okay. So I'm now not selling hand dryers anymore. So I didn't sell the business. I mean, I, essentially is selling a business, but like my core parent company, I didn't sell. Sure. I, I just sold, I sold a customer list. Yeah. A, a revenue stream. A revenue stream. Yeah. Yeah. A it's gone. Times it's a revenue stream. A revenue yeah. Stream, for sure. Sold the revenue stream. Yeah. What's interesting about that, it's a huge lesson I learned about selling a business and that when you sell a business, no one cares. And to you, you care, but, and, and people will congratulate you and go, oh, cool. But I, t- I talk about this with my friends be- because you're no longer that person that can take that phone call and help someone with hand dryers. So your identity, 
you used to be tied at some at some level to being the hand dryer guy. Yep. And now when you get that phone call, you, you don't get to help them. You go, oh, well, you actually have to call Daryl now. And he's like, what do you mean I have to call Daryl? They know who Daryl is, but why can't There's help? a reason why they're calling you. Yeah. Well, for many instances, but that, um, you know, a couple weeks go by, a month, month two goes by, and no one cares anymore that you don't do that anymore. And so the the glory, if you will, like selling a business, it's pretty short. Yeah. And then it's gone and no one cares. And they're like, oh yeah, you used to sell hand dryers. That's that's cool. But like What do you do now? Yeah, what do you do now? Yeah. And uh, so that identity thing is, is weird, honestly. Well, we talked, uh, so part of what I'm hearing you say there is, is kind of what we talked about, uh, whatever we even talked about doing this podcast a couple weeks ago. Uh, and that is, there's a story associated with the journey. Um, and really, from where you're at now, looking back at those inflection points, uh, you know, to be concise with it, it was 2004, graduated, 2006, neutral Katie conversation in the, in the kitchen, each one of those kind of create this, this kind of visceral emotional reaction inside of somebody when they're going through it. It's a story to somebody, but it's also why people can't stop looking at a train wreck or a car wreck, whenever something happens, there's something about that emotional angst that draws people in. Um, and then, you know, traffic patterns don't, they don't really get paid attention to because normal things are going on kind of like normal business until all of a sudden there's a big change. Um, what happens behind the scenes, I think in each one of those little inflection points is you start questioning the doubt creeps in a little bit, you start questioning your capabilities, even though you've done mm -hmm. some incredible things with the business. I want to know, how did you, how did you deal with, or did you deal with that? Or you oh, did, you did deal with that. Okay. Yeah. So how did you deal with that? Um, like, was it a recognition of like, okay, there's a problem. This is probably not the greatest self-talk here. Uh, I don't need to be, you know, combating, you know, having to deal with this, you know, angry thing that I'm having in the mirror all the time, which is kind of what I have to go and deal with from time to time. It's just, a, it's a negative, mm -hmm. not necessarily negative self-talk. I don't want to put a, a glossy layer over the top of it, but it, it really can be detrimental to whenever you're going there and taking a risk and you start to start to really question whether or not you're capable of accomplishing, you know, mm -hmm. you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about how you dealt with that. The, the mentor I got, Matt, and, you know, got, met him in 2010, started working with him pretty closely then, helped me work through a lot of that self-doubt and, and talking through it. We kind of hit it off and became pretty close friends, and we still work every single day. He actually runs our Missouri warehouse now, um, and, and he's part of the ownership now of the company. So oh, he's a Kansas City guy. That, yeah, okay, gotcha. City, yeah exactly. So now he's, he went from mentor to now he works in the company, he's an owner, and you know, uh, the relationships really flourished. But yeah, I met him at a time when I was doing triathlons at a high hour count per week. I wouldn't say high level because I wouldn't say it was that fast, but um, I was spending 25 hours a week on the bike running or in the pool. And I had an awesome coach, Michael Dowdy, who was laying out the big plan of, you know, how I'm going to work on these triathlons and um, triathlons was a lot of fun and I had goals and I was trying to reach those goals and races were going well, but the company was still kind of struggling from saying it wasn't where I wanted it to be. And we weren't making things happen like I wanted to make happen. And I remember Matt pulled me aside. He goes, man, I wonder if you put into the company the kind of energy putting into triathlons. And that was 2010, 2011. Well, little did you know that, you know, probably a couple of weeks before that, Katie had probably sent him a message saying, yeah, oh my gosh, gosh. <laughs> I'm just yeah, no, but, but, but a lot of things happened in that time frame because Elliot, my oldest was born in 2011. And so in that summer when she was born, so you had Matt making that kind of comment. And then these two riders in Dallas, that was part of our South Loop group you know, every Saturday they met at White Rock and they would go south Dallas and back about 60 miles round trip. There's two cyclists that were in that group who on their own training on a Tuesday morning randomly were mowed over by a 
car going to work and killed instantly. Oh, and I, I didn't know them by name, but I knew they were in our training group because there was like 50, 70 riders in that group. Um, but Elliot had just been born. I was trying to do more at the company. And, and now I have a small family. And I remember thinking, I'm not afraid of dying, but I don't want to die that way. And I hung my bike up in the garage, didn't touch triathlons again, and started hustling at the company. And so basically transferred that 20, 25 hours a week that was spent on triathlons over to the company and, and the concentrate on Katie and this newborn. But uh, that was a, a turning point of, excuse me, because at that moment I was doing the three things. So Dyson Airblades and warehousing. And the warehousing is early space management, not the software component or any, any of those things, correct? Right. Okay, cool. We haven't talked about that a whole lot, but... About the warehousing part? Right. Yeah. So we'll, we'll get into that here in a sec, but... Sure. Okay, so uh, Elliot was born in 2011, huge inflection point. Again, we started talking about where you're at now, looking back at these inflection points. Prior to there being, uh, I would say, a crescendo and or a change, there's that emotional conflict, and it sounded like Matt had helped you did you recognize that, mm -hmm. you know, kind of when things are starting to kind of creep in now to where you can figure out, oh, I need to be very concise and, and uh, precise and prescriptive almost on what you do and how you handle it. So you're you're in the right mindset whenever you go through those inflection points still. Yeah, there's the, the self-doubt thing you mentioned, because that's really was a big part of my thought process that I didn't know it was there. And and Matt helped me walk through that and saying, well, this is seems pretty simple math because you know how to work hard from a triathlon standpoint, you're putting the hours in and I was being consistent. Um, I was not the most athletic person, but I just spent more consistent time on the road. So the guys who are naturally faster and naturally uh, quicker, whatever, but I could, I outworked them for a number of hours on the road. That was the only way I could finish ahead of them. So Matt said, well, you're, you're more consistent and, and you have the, the discipline, but you just apply that to your soap and warehouse and hand dryer company instead of doing that. And it, it all kind of made sense. And it was, you know, God slapped me in the face saying, Hey, trying to help you here. And, you know, my dad always believed in a, having a, a really strong coach or mentor. So it really helped that dad loved Matt. And so dad felt comfortable with everything that Matt was going to tell me to do, you know, or suggest that I do next. He was like, yep, Matt's smart. Absolutely. Go for it. Wow. So the voices, not the voices, the, the voice, your voice telling, telling yourself that you can't do something. Um, the similarities between you doing that and other podcasts that we've had in the past, there's, there's a number of them that I can think of right now. So if you're just listening to my way and some of what Billy's talking about uh, that resonates, um, not everybody makes great decisions whenever they go through that, those self periods of self doubt. Some of them we've talked about before on the podcast, but some of them have led to uh, personal relationships, breaking apart mm -hmm. uh, businesses, you know, going uh, separate ways. Um, you know, we've had a, we've had a number of uh, somebody who, was a surfer on just recently talking about how, uh, you know, part of what gave them that gumption was they would go out in the water and they would go and, and experience these waves until they had a gigantic wreck. And they were, I mean, they were essentially bedridden for, for a number of, well, for about half a year. And mm -hmm. it was crazy what happened to the, to the guy. He never really got it back until he went and he faced another wave that was similar to that. So it was, you know, things like that, that you, that some people kind of challenge themselves from an adventure standpoint. Not everybody always is willing or has the, op the opportunity to go through the, the business challenge and mm -hmm. uh, overcoming that particular inertia, going after a client list and getting constant no's or not understanding the value proposition with who you're going after and, and who you're trying to go and close and sell. So um, there's a lot of challenge associated with that, especially when you hear no and, and you need that deal to close in order to make payroll or, understand that there's probably going to be a debt that's going to come up in here with the next 30 to 60 days. So mm -hmm. understanding that is a, is a big challenge. So now that you've kind of, I would say brought the business over the last 10, almost 15 years now, 
to a point where you've sold off one of the one of one of the revenue streams and you've created some other ones. Like what when you look back on it, this is not quite a podcast. Now you did it perfectly for the first time podcast. So like where do things go now? Like are have you thought about all the lessons learned and where you kind of see the business going and how does that affect you personally? Well yeah, that's a at this point, well I don't do hand dryers anymore. Yeah. I have soap, which is great, and a warehouse company and a small building on I I thirty. So from a sales point standpoint, it's hard to sell ham and warehousing when you only have 25,000 square feet. It's pretty boutique. I mean, it's basically uh, like saying you're doing warehousing from a coffee shop. We're going to put the inventory. And so there was a, there was a lot of, uh, I'll say, uh, mistaken effort in, in what do I do next to where, well, soap is not working. And warehousing with these clients is working for now, but the writing was on the wall that these customers, customers leave in warehousing, sometimes without notice, sometimes with notice. Um, This is kind of nice now, but it's not gonna be nice here very, very soon when you're trying to do warehousing from a small building. And that's where I'd say there's there's a big faith uh, switch in my life that was about, oh, four, six years ago. Yeah, about six years ago where it clicked. You know, it was kind of after selling the hand dryer business for sure. And uh, my wife noticed it and I needed to do a lot more trust in what he was going to have me do. He being God. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. To be clear. Yeah, Yeah. just to be clear. Um, So it was a big moment there where I went, you know, my, my faith needed to, uh, to, to grow for, for the next thing to happen. And cause it was, there's lots of mistakes, too many to, to name out cause they were, um, happening in a lot altogether. But, um, I remember praying, asking like, kind of, what do I do next? Because I can't just stay where I'm at and this is a challenge. So I remember being at soccer at Lake Point church, the LP's kids soccer. And I met a guy, uh, named Mike Worcester. And, uh, I think Mike is on the elder board right now, Lake Point. I know he was last year or the year before. Anyway, Mike, uh, owns a furniture company called Elements. And I got to know him on the soccer field and through like daddy daughter stuff. And he, uh, told me where his building was on industrial boulevard. I'm like, Oh, um, I'm not familiar with that one. He said, well, it's hidden and kind of hard to see it. I should come check it out one time. And so I took him up on it and I went down Industrial Boulevard and you have to go behind the tree line. You've been to the office before. You have to go behind the tree line and open it up. And it's an enormous building. It's 160,000 square feet. And Mike is using every cubic inch of it, a full furniture. I couldn't believe it. It was the most full building I've ever seen in my life. And I said, gosh, Mike, I made a joke. It's like, you ever run out of this space and move to a bigger one? Give me a call. I'll, I'll, I'll I'd like this building. And I, I never thought of anything after that. It just kind of, was just a comment. A year and a half later, he calls me out of the blue and says, Hey, I'm moving to Mesquite. And he's moving his company to a building that's like 400,000 square feet. Huge. And I said, uh, and he goes, well, so I'm going to call the landlord here tomorrow and tell him I'm not going to renew my lease. Do you want me to give him your name? Do you want me to give him your name? And my, my heart stopped and I got a cold sweat and I went, yes, give him my name. And so the next day I meet the landlord who owns the building and, uh, just to loop back to the original, it's the same family that helped my dad in the early eighties by giving us free rent for six months to save the company, uncle Al and his nephew, Sharif, same family. They remember me and say, you're the little kid that was at the soap factory when, you know, I was at that time, you know, three, four five years old. Yeah. That's crazy. And they meet my, you know, and they say, Hey Scott, you know, good to see you. And, uh, 
they called you Scott? No, they, they said hi to Scott, oh, my sure. dad, yeah, and then they said hi to me yeah. and introduced myself, reintroduced myself. Oh, yeah, you were the little kid. And we explained our situation. So we have this warehouse company. It's on the other side of the interstate. It's only 25,000 square feet. And we want to move into this building. It's four and a half times the size of our current space and to help our warehouse business grow. Now, with our financials, we didn't have anything to suggest that we could pay the rent on 163,000 square feet. Nothing. And Sharif, without really any hesitation at all, the, the nephew of Uncle Al, because Uncle Al at that time was 95 years old, uh, Sharif said, uh, we'll, we'll rent the building to you. And he shook my hand and we made a deal in that lobby right that day. Oh my gosh. And, and now it was to, now Mike with his company still had like three, four months on its lease left before he moved into his bigger building. But nevertheless, he shook my hand and said, you can be the next tenant. So I had four months to try and go find warehouse customers that would be able to move in the moment I got the building. Um, and that was a, that was a, a cool time looking back on it, but that was a scary, that scary was in 2017 time. Or twenty seventeen or twenty or twenty sixteen. Oh no, I'm sorry. That was uh that was twenty nineteen. Goodness gracious, twenty nineteen. <clears throat> as we're sitting here talking about this, Billy, uh, that was right around the time I remember coming and talking to you. Um, my wife had written a, a children's nutrition book at the time. I remember we were, that we were talking to you just in passing about options, not knowing that at that particular time you were going a million miles. I, you had talked about sleeping on the couch and, you know, just kind of making, making that casual comment. And I, it was, it resonated with me because I remember the hours and sleeping one to three hours or so at nighttime, just because of the, the pace that I was running at for, for that time. That was just commonplace. It's kind of, yeah, you hear people doing that all the time. No problem. That's, mm -hmm. it wasn't really anything. I didn't think twice about it, but it's crazy to think about all the steps that were happening prior to us getting the chance to meet again in 2019. So I, it's difficult to even formulate how to process that without having somebody gone through that. So when people say faith, sometimes they shut off. They don't understand what that really even means. What was it about that feeling when you said yes? Like, can you describe the, the clarity or was it a piece? Like what was it that came about you after you said yes? Cause you obviously stepped into something that you felt like was, you know, your yeah. Calling. Yeah. I stepped in as far as faith, I stepped into a better studying of the word than I was doing before. And I didn't, uh, I'd say, I think it was 2016 when I started teaching uh, adult life group for the first time, I'd never taught a Bible study in my life. And, you know, to hear, a Bible lesson versus studying it is completely different to try and learn it, to be able to teach it to someone else. It's scary. Very, very scary. And, uh, so that was a change in my life to where, Oh, I'm, I'm actually studying the word. And my buddy Mason Randall said, when you're teaching the life group, uh, you should probably be putting six hours into each lesson, but the commentary videos, study reading and so that was that was one and then that opened up a lot of things that i needed to change in my uh my sin nature which was drinking and so i was a for lack of a better i was a functioning alcoholic and so all the stressors all the self-doubt of really my whole adult career and the company was a lot of drinking, drinking at the office, drinking after the office, drinking at home, drinking again after that. And, uh, it was, it was bad. And it had like gotten to where I couldn't remember the last time I didn't have a drink on a day. It's full transparency. It got, it got, now I'm teaching life group. I'm active in uh, kids ministry, but at home I'm drinking, you know? And, uh, so Four years and three months ago is when that light switch went, I, I can't do this anymore. And I stopped drinking September 10th of 
2018. Wow. That was my last drink. Yeah, pretty, pretty impactful uh, that you remember the day. Uh, I mean, that's, yeah. that's a pretty big deal. Uh, it was a big deal for me. And where that's when my faith really leapfrogged, if you will. Like it really leapfrogged. It really went up yeah. uh, and, and closer to God because of that was a, was a big piece of uh, my life that I was given too much to alcohol and all the self-doubt going to that and self-medicating. And then um, it was a year plus after stop stopping drinking that that warehouse opportunity to go across the street to the bigger place, yeah. to handshake a deal. I, I, still to this day, I've never met anybody that was able to like lease a warehouse space on a handshake. No, because it doesn't happen. Yeah. It, it doesn't happen. Well, you hear stories like that, but you only hear stories like that through, um, uh, where it goes badly. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I mean, that's funny, but no, the, there, there's stories like that where people will, um, like you can't orchestrate that yourself, right? It, there's mm -hmm. obviously something else going on. Um, in the, you know, without getting into it uh, a whole lot here, there's, there's, there's a feeling that you get that also somebody else has, and it's almost as if there's this confirmation that takes place because mm -hmm. um, you, you can't orchestrate some of that. But I mean, it, and people like to, I've heard it said, that's how God works. Like he, he moves things differently. I don't pretend to understand it. I just heard people talk about it and it only makes sense. Um, like I was, I was having breakfast with, uh, I was having breakfast with somebody and some random person came and like stood at the table and said, Hey, I, I felt compelled to come and say something to you. And he was talking to the person we were having breakfast with. Mm -hmm. And it was almost as if the person I was having breakfast with could complete that person's sentence and vice versa. And they had never seen each other or met each other before. There's no way whatsoever that that could have happened. Mm -hmm. That's, that's what I mean by they, those things just happen sometimes, but you don't hear about it all the time unless you're, talk with people who are in the board or talking to people who have a, 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 a next level to their faith. Right. So, um, I think it's, it's, um, it's clear, like looking at your story, have you stopped to think about, you know, all the times that you were in college and the lack of experience, so to speak, that could have prevented somebody from going and taking a risk like now from where you are now, uh, there's been, there's been somebody who's kind of had your back the, the entire time. When I say had your back, there's been God who's been watching over you the entire time. And now where you are and kind of where the business is, um, there's a reason why things worked out the way that they did. Like, mm -hmm. Have you thought, have you thought through all those things before? Uh, I think now about what's the next impactful thing that will happen in my life that will help someone else's walk. Okay. So one of the things when I was really enthusiastic about, coming onto your podcast was and and what your podcast is trying to do is bring to light some things that are in the dark and that there is somebody's story that is in the dark that doesn't need to be and it's either going to help someone else lift up out of a dark place or um or just give some closure or whatever that means for the the next thing and so I, i'm curious about well i wonder what god's going to have in store for me next and there's always heat and in, in my world. So I, Katie and I laugh about, well, where's the heat going to be today? And there's always problems. I, I tell my team at the warehouse, well, if our customers don't have problems, they don't need us in the first place. So where's the heat going to be logistically, ocean containers, whatever. But, um, but I am curious about what it's going to be put in my path that will help someone else. Uh, hopefully not hurt someone else, yeah. but yeah, I'm, I'm curious about what, what the next thing will be. I don't think you're, you're open to it, right? You're, you're open to whatever that is, uh, mm -hmm. which is part of the reason why it, it doesn't come to a lot of people. Or but it's kind of closed up. My dad uh, talked a lot about failure and, and like what I, th I talk about what my girls are going to go through. Yeah. What do I want my girls, uh, they're 11, nine, six, and five. What do I want them to understand about the self family? and history and how am I going to tell the story to them about what happened to me versus happened to my dad versus happened to my grandfather. Um, cause he had his own pretty major failures and that's what I want my girls to know about. It's okay to fail. And, 
it's kind of cool to fail greatly as long as you feel that's what God was putting on your heart to go try. And kind of what I mentioned before, where the self-family mantra was going after something where the outcome is in doubt. Uh, and, and I want my girls to, whether they go to college or not, uh, you know, my wife wants them to go to college very much so, but we actively talk about like, maybe not, you know, there's a lot of other paths that you can go to be successful and hustle and you can, um, lots of different efforts in, in life. But, um, but going after things where the outcome is in doubt, where moving from that other building was 25,000 square feet to where we are now with 163,000 square feet, a huge amount of doubt. My dad was still alive at the time, and he pulled me aside after we shook hands with Uncle Al's uh, nephew, Sharif. And he pulled me aside and goes, now, Billy, you, you're going to sign that lease on a handshake, and but you're still personally tied to that lease. That, uh, sign. Yeah, um, which made, like a personal guarantee. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. personal guarantee. Well, but my name's not going to be on that. Scott Self's name's not going to be on that. It's going to be Billy Self. And... I will not be able to help you if you can't make rent. Okay. It's like, so just want you to understand this outcome is in doubt and I won't be able to help you. Now it's even more so because he's, he's gone. You know, it's like, there's also that kind of a manhood thing of when I've heard it said, like you, you're not uh, a, a man. It's not to say you're not a man, but like there's a different level of manhood. That's why there's a different level of manhood when your dad's gone. Yeah. And so now there really, really is nobody to help you. You're it. You're the man, uh, so to speak. But anyway, yeah. you know what I mean. It's it. So when he said you, you know, I won't be able to help you, that was a big moment. I'm like, oh, I really better get after it. It's, there's a. I tell my boys. This doesn't necessarily mean that I can always execute it. I, I wish I wish I could. What I mean by that is there's always this, you know, in the back of your mind. Um, can I, <laughs> even though you already have, like, even though you've already done it and stepping into, uh, you know, more responsibility. Second Timothy chapter one, verse seven talks about how God did not give you a spirit of fear or timidity. He gave you a spirit of power of love and have a sound mind or self-discipline, you know, depending on the translation. But that, that, that's that fear, that doubt. If that's being felt, that's not his spirit, right? There's something else that's in you that's trying to influence in that moment a decision point that's going to be kind of what we talked about inflection points back, you know, um, a little bit earlier. So, I mean, the whole point of this podcast, and I appreciate you taking the time to, I mean, to walk through the level of detail and understand that there was a lot of times where things could have gone right instead of left, uh, mm-hmm. or left instead of right, depending upon your perspective, and. Uh, because you were willing to step up, because you were willing to put yourself between, you know, the decision and the outcome. I mean, things worked out. I mean, things, they, they worked out well, but they worked out and they're continuing to be better. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're only going to get better. At least. Hope so. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, I, in my opinion, I think that that's just kind of how things work. Things will always work out the way they're supposed to. Just the, the process to get there is kind of sucks sometimes. Uh, so, but I appreciate you sharing the story yeah. and I appreciate you, you putting yourself out there because there's there's somebody who's listening to this right now um it's difficult to know who or, or what but those of you who are listening it, it you just gotta stay consistent or reach out or you know ask for help or do all of the things that we talked about Ooh, in the podcast. yeah that, that's really good because that was a big thing that my dad pushed on me was don't stay in the dark answer the phone call from your debtors whoever you owe money to the bank to, no matter how uncomfortable, answer the phone, tell them that you can't make it, that payment, whatever, ask for forgiveness, or just ask them to be a part of the conversation. That was a, um, I hope I'll always be able to do that, just yeah. to answer the phone call. Yeah. Well, I, pre- I appreciate you answering this one and, and being on on this, uh, you know, on this podcast with us. Yeah, it's uh, been a lot of fun. So when it comes to, when it comes to one thing that you want to leave these folks with when it comes to, I mean, just put yourself, you know, back in 2006 and you're talking to yourself in 2006, like, what would you tell yourself? Well, let's wrap there with what you would tell yourself after, you know, imagine the next day after Katie came up and talked to you in the, in the kitchen the night before, what would you tell yourself? 
in terms of staying consistent. Find the best mentor that you can. Find the best mentor that you can that can help. And don't stop the search to find the best mentor that can help you walk through your career, your life. Just that simple. Mm-hmm. I mean, don't you wish you would have done it sooner? No, I'm just, I'm just <laughs> oh my gosh. All right. Well, I, I appreciate uh, Billy uh, for taking the time. Like I said, those of you who are listening who are local here, uh, yeah, that's. Uh, how can people get in touch with you? That's that's what we want to leave them with. How can oh, people get in touch with you? Gosh. Um, well, uh, I'll just leave my phone number. How about that? <laughs> or, or how do they get in touch with your business? Like, what's the best way? What's the best? If somebody oh. is hearing this and they're like, ah, yeah, I want to want to reach out to that guy. Or, you know what? I need that, whatever it is that you have. What's the best way for people to get in touch with you? Yeah, I think LinkedIn would be the, the most global thing. That's uh, just looking at Billy's cell phone, LinkedIn. And my LinkedIn is pretty public. I don't have my contacts, you know, hidden or private or anything. So LinkedIn, just really self. And the name of the business. Warehouse Pro. There you go. Yeah. It's easy to spell. So Marine Corps, Marine guys who are listening at warehouses is two words. So where, I'm sorry, warehouse is one word, like I said, Marine. Uh Warehouse and then Pro, two words. So Warehouse Pro is the best way to get in touch with him. So Billy Self on LinkedIn, Warehouse Pro the business. Thank you, Steven. Appreciate you, brother. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, it was a good time. Cool. So for those of you like listening to Knucklehead, we you know we try we try putting these out every Tuesday. It doesn't always work out that way. So uh just keep make sure you subscribe. Uh make sure you go follow his business uh, on all the social channels. And uh with that, Billy, we're wrap. Thank you, man. I uh, appreciate you. Bye. Attitude.